Hey everyone, your support of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen has been amazing. Your support on Patreon has helped us grow the podcast. I'm planning some multi-guest episodes that would not be possible without your support. As support grows, I hope to improve the rewards to listeners and expand the reach of the podcast. You can help by contributing as little as $1 a month. Support today by visiting patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. This is Matt Payne, and this is f-stop, collaborate, and listen. Welcome to episode 57 with Colby Brown. I got a lot of uh, awesome questions from uh, people over on the Facebook group for the podcast, and uh, I just laid them right to Colby, and he delivered the goods this week. I think you guys will really like it. Talked a lot about social media, talked about uh, Colby's journey into photography and his insane travel schedule and how he keeps that all together while maintaining a a wife and a family at home. Over on uh, Patreon this week, we talked about uh, the past, present, and future of social media. And uh, yeah, enjoy the show. Thanks. Oh, Colby Brown, it's so cool to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Happy to be here, man. It's It's been a while. I know we've we've uh, tried to make this work for a couple months now, so we're, we're finally here. Yeah, it's cool. So um, for those that don't uh, know who you are, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into this crazy world of photography. Sure. So the the short elevator pitch version is essentially that... I'm a landscape travel and humanitarian photographer based out of the East Coast um, that spends a lot of his time traveling around the globe, um, focusing on both education as well as larger marketing campaigns for both tech and travel companies. Um, That's the bread and butter of kind of what I do and how I do this for a living. Um, I've been doing this for 12 years and I've spent time working for Lots of different companies out there, including for National Geographic, um, helping them create some of their student expedition programs uh, back in the heyday, uh, back in 2008, 2009. And that kind of spring-loaded a lot of opportunities for me career-wise and made me realize not only my love of education and photography itself, but also that I like being my own boss. And that's when I started building my own companies. Now I own two Coley Brown Photography and The Giving Lens, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about a little yeah. bit during our time together, um, and certainly have ideas for other ones that I want to start as well. Um, and quickly circling back around to how I got into this, um, I don't have that nostalgic story where my father handed me a camera when I was six, <laughs> and it's something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, truth be told, I played sports my entire life. Um, up until I was 17, I broke my back um, off-season in football in Texas and lost any scholarship opportunities that I had at the time, which was great. I was kind of done with sports by then uh, for various different reasons. And um, essentially what happened is I got bit by the travel bug. So that same year, or I guess after I I healed, I went down to Costa Rica for kind of Habitat for Humanity type of trip. And uh, in all honesty, I was probably like a horrible traveler at the time. I'm pretty sure I complained the entire time because it was hot and we were, you know, building schools and, you know, laying roads and all sorts of stuff. Um, But after the trip, I kind of realized quickly that it was a very profound moment in my life. And it was something that... I love feeling out of my element. I love the idea of travel and I wanted to do more of it. And so throughout college, I take a semester or a year off here or there and go travel around. And so by the time I graduated, I simply knew that that's what I wanted to do. 
And at the time I was single and nomadic. And so I didn't really have any constraints holding me back. And I um, essentially decided I wanted to be back on the road. And I figured that photography might be the conduit that simply allowed me to continue to move from country to country. And I spent a couple of years living over in Asia, um, teaching myself photography, building up a portfolio. And it just so happened to turn into a passion rather than be my kind of origin point of, of why I got into this industry, which I think definitely has a lot of interesting connotations or a lot of interesting ramifications for my approach to photography and um, kind of how I, it's very easy for me to compartmentalize things is because it didn't start as that kind of, you know, passion project. I have to do this to define who I am. It was more so a means to an end. It was the conduit or the vehicle that allowed me to continue to travel hmm. and see more and more of the planet. That's cool. That's funny. Uh, I actually fractured my L5 vertebra playing football when I was 17 also. That's awesome. I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a similar L5 buddy too, man. It's, it's good times, right? <laughs> yeah, I was actually more into, uh, I, was, I was a pitcher in baseball and football was just kind of like, you know, what you did in, in the fall <laughs> for yep. me anyways. And uh, fracture mile five and same thing. Like I missed out on like all the scholarship opportunities for baseball because of that. Cause I was busy doing physical therapy and stuff like that. That's funny. It's, it's certainly a long recovery for, for me. My main sport was basketball. I mean, I'm six, three, I'm a pretty tall, tall, tall guy. Um, but yeah, just like, like you football was what you did in the off season and until it fractures your L five and then, <laughs> and, and then it becomes more of a permanent thing. Yeah. So, wow, that's cool. So how many, um, have you counted like how many countries you've traveled to? You know, I've lost track. I don't really <laughs> count them anymore. But last I was counting, it's in the 70s or 80s by now, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Nice. Um, which is, I don't know, it's one of those funny things where obviously compared to a lot of people, I, I certainly do feel that it is a lot. I'm incredibly fortunate and, and thankful for the opportunities that I have. But at the same time, like there's a lot more countries to see. So I kind of figure that my my bucket list just gets bigger every year and more specific rather than when I first started, it was like, I want to go to Africa. And right. now that I've been there so many times, it's like, I want to go to see this specific festival at this specific time of year and go to this specific, you know, village. And yeah, so, so my list is ridiculously long now, regardless yeah. of how much I've traveled. And you've got uh, a wife and how many kids now? Uh, I have uh, just one son. So just he's, one. okay. Yeah, yeah, he turned seven in August. He's uh, He's a bundle of joy for sure. Yeah, I've got a 10-year-old myself, so I hear you. It's it's um, <laughs> a good age for sure, man. But yeah, they're definitely they're 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 involved, that's for sure. So, one of the obvious questions I think a lot of people have uh for you Colby is like how the hell do you balance the creative pursuit of photography and travel and going overseas all the time and also have the wherewithal and the mind and the soul to uh take care of your family as well? Well, I think I, I, it's a great question and, and there's no easy answer. There's no, you know, I, I think that people look up to individuals that are in my space in this industry that do do as much travel as I do and over romanticize uh -huh. the notion of, of what we do and what we have to go through. And I'm constantly in airports. I'm constantly jet lag. I'm constantly traveling. I'm obviously away from my family. Like there's all these challenges that present itself and you know, there's a there's a couple of realities to that. Um, I think first and foremost, I couldn't do what I do if it wasn't for my incredible wife. I mean, you know, having someone that is supportive, a supportive partner that 
understands where you're going and what you're trying to do and is, uh, you know, in her, uh, in her own way, you know, sacrificing to be able to make, you know, that happen for us as a family, for me as an individual is something that, um, I, I, I have to acknowledge that, that it's, it's not, this couldn't be a reality having a family without having a supportive second half. Um, so, so that's, that's a big one. All my other relationships before I met my wife, Sarah failed because it wasn't a good fit because there wasn't a good gel because there wasn't either support on both sides of the fence and, um, it just didn't work out, which I think is conducive of why, if you look at the travel photography space, at least for the guys that have been doing this for a long time, the divorce rate is actually ridiculously high, just like military, just like anyone else that travels quite a bit. It, it's, it's not an easy pursuit. Right. Um, but on a more positive note, you know, my photography companies are the sole provider for my family. And so for me, while it is difficult to travel as much as I do, the truth is, is that they are my driving force. They are why I do what I do. They are why I'm, you know, how, when it comes up to the business side of things, like who I work with and the amount of money that I charge for my time when I'm doing projects or workshops or, you know, writing books or whatever it is, is all comes down to time valuation. And I quickly learned a few years ago that my biggest asset as a, as an entrepreneur, as a photographer in this space is time. So time away from my family has a monetary value that provides for my family, that pays for our house, that pays for our travel and the life that we love to live. And so it is a challenge, um, but at the same time, it's the core piece that allows us to, you know, pick up and go where we want to go. I mean, this year, you know, in the next three months alone, I'm taking my wife and son to Iceland. I'm taking them to the British Virgin Islands. I'm taking them to Myanmar. You know, the world is becoming like a school for my son. Yeah. So we homeschool. And, and so we, we make it work. We, we've adapted our lives for this type of lifestyle. It's not for everyone, but I wouldn't trade it for anything, man. I mean, it's, it's you know, being a parent and being able to show my kids and my wife the world that I fell in love with is something very profound to me and, and becomes that driving force that kind of keeps me going on those days where you're just exhausted and you're going from airport to airport and you don't know what time zone you're in. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it, yeah, I don't know, man. It, it's, I, I love, I love that space. I love that feeling. And, um, I love providing this lifestyle for, for our family. So it, it doesn't become a, a challenge or it's a challenge, but it doesn't become a chore if that makes sense. Um, you know, if, if I didn't love what I did or what I do and, um, I, I wouldn't do it anymore, simply put. Yeah, no, I've, I've talked to a few other people. I know Miles Morgan had some like challenges with that because he traveled and did photography a lot and wasn't able to spend a lot of time, uh, with his, I guess, you know, with his wife or whatever. And has it ever caused any tension or have you just kind of figured out a way to balance it and make it work? Well, I think that, you know, the key is, is constantly, you know, uh, you know, having communication check-ins. I mean, it's, it's no different than necessarily any other relationship, um, in terms of balance of, of communication and trust, but you just have to be much more proactive (laughs) in terms of, of, you know, checking in and being open about the challenges of what's happening. My wife is very good about reaching out when she needs help mm. and, and, you know, what's happening. And, and I think a lot of that helps. I'd also be lying if I said the technology hasn't played a big role. So, you know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, when I started this, 
we didn't have the tools that we do now where I can be in the middle of the Serengeti, you know, staring at a pride of lions and, you know, be, you know, video chatting with my son back here at home. Right. You know, I think that those types of technology advances technology has really helped maintain connection and communication in as meaningful way as you possibly can from halfway across the world. Um, and so I think that definitely plays a role, but, um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, communication is key and, it, like I said, it's not easy, man. It, it's there, there's a reason that a lot of people get divorced in this space, and I think that right. you, you you have to have you have to be comfortable having a a combined collective life with your family as well as an individual. You know, both me and and my wife are individual people. We have our own interests, and so when we're away, it you know allows us to pursue those types of things. And when we're together, we're a collective family unit, and allows us to appreciate that time much more. Um, which I think is a added benefit in a situation where I look at a lot of friends and colleagues and, you know, you don't, you, you begin to take things for granted and we cherish every moment that we get together because of how much I travel. Sure. No, that makes sense. Okay. Well, sh- shifting gears a little bit, speaking of traveling, um, I know you, you post a lot of photography and, and social media and stuff like that while you're traveling and on the road. So what does your kind of mobile editing process look like and and how, how does that line up with what you do once you get home? Well, it depends on what I'm working on on the road. So I have two different pathways. One is I, I you know, bring a you know, proper powerful laptop and, and do processing on the road. Right now I'm using a, a Dell XPS 15 2-in-1 that has kind of a Wacom uh, pen, uh, pen stylus support built into the screen, which is really great. Okay. So I don't have to bring a Wacom device. I don't have to sacrifice that and use a trackpad or a mouse, which I hate doing for processing. <laughs> so, so that's like really helped speed up for me a lot of, um, you know, heavy lifting on the road for both video and photo editing. However, when I'm on the road and it's a pinch, I'm trying to get something out there. I do use Lightroom Mobile quite a bit. I'm a big fan of it. Um, yeah. being able to process DNG files as well as JPEGs, and it's pretty powerful. It's getting more powerful each time they update things. Having that sync back to the cloud for when I'm working in locations that have internet or have good internet, which isn't everywhere, um, those are added benefits. And so when I'm in the road and I'm processing, I'll with if it's in the cloud, that it's in the cloud and I get back and it kind of syncs back. Although that's more so for kind of that short term, I just need to get something posted for where I'm at, a little bit more kind of live feed, so to speak, sure. for my followers or the clients. Almost I'm like with. a behind the scenes type of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do a lot of behind the scenes stuff. I'll do sometimes a quick edit and share it just to have something, you know, to, to push out there that's a little bit more polished. Sure. Um, I try to, re- you know, refrain from that as much as I can because I, I don't like to put out kind of like half done right. work. <laughs> um, but sometimes you need something out there and, and it works great in a pinch. Uh, for everything else, like I said, I use, you know, Lightroom and and uh, on one and capture one. And, you know, as a photo educator, I pretty much use the breadth of, of everything, a little bit of everything um, that, that makes things work um, on uh, on the laptop on the road. And then when I get back, I'm ingesting that back into kind of large RAID servers here at my office um, where I can I can, you know, offload stuff from that trip that's new content that is some of it's been processed, some of it hasn't kind of all backed up to two different RAID devices back here at home. And then it ultimately goes up to the cloud as well as my third level of redundancy. Mm-hmm. And it, it works pretty well. I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty good setup. I usually bring a couple thousand images with me on the road uh, on a couple different hard drives, which have gotten smaller and faster and, and more powerful. Yeah. 
uh, which is great. So that I can process backlog images as well because you know I'm, I'm still to this day processing stuff from like eight years ago. It's not necessarily the high priority stuff, but there's certainly times where I get in a mood where I'm like, you know, I really want to process some of this stuff from like Antelope Canyon. And so I'll grab, you know, a bunch of that stuff from the archives and take it with me on the road, process it when I'm on the planes or waiting for a flight or on a train or whatever it is. I'm sitting in a hotel room late at night, can't sleep. And then that kind of helps me um, go back and, and process things that I had either overlooked or just haven't had time to go. And um, it happens a lot because, again, I'm, I'm doing like project to project this year alone. I've... I've already been to you know Cuba, Iceland, Norway, Chile, Argentina. I'm leaving tomorrow for Australia for a few weeks. I'm back in Iceland in the summertime. I'll be going up to Alaska to do some wildlife stuff in August. Myanmar again. Like, like it just kind of keeps adding up, yeah. and and there's no way I can process all of it. So I'm <laughs> I'm I constantly have like tens of thousands of like gems that I just have to carve out, you know, some time to process. And a lot of that happens on the road these days. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so I think you had mentioned to me that you'd been to Iceland, like, I don't know, you'd say like 15 times or something crazy like that. You told me, I can't remember. Yeah. It's, well, actually this summer will be my 26th trip. <laughs> so, and I, I think a lot of it is um, you're, you're leading workshops and things like that. Do you ever get tired of uh, taking people to the same, like how many times have you been to the, like the glacier lagoon? Like, do you get tired of it at all? Or is each time you go a little bit different or how do you, how do you keep it fresh? Well, it's definitely different. I mean, I, you know, for Iceland specifically, and I'll happily admit that 26 times is a ridiculous number to visit anywhere that's outside where you actually live. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's pretty, when, whenever I go through customs at Iceland and they're like looking for the stamps for yeah. everything, like I just look at their look and they're just like, why is this dude coming here <laughs> so often? Um, but I started traveling to Iceland in 2011 before it really kind of took uh -huh. off. And then, as you said, you know, sometimes I'll do a couple series of workshops there a year. Sometimes I do marketing campaigns. Sometimes I'll go for personal projects. So those are kind of, you know, there, there's been years where I've been five times in a single year. It, it's just kind of sometimes that's how it works out with some of these hot spots in the landscape world. Um, but for me, in order to keep things fresh, yeah, I mean, I, I there's a couple things. I mean, I I think that places like Iceland or Patagonia or Norway, where I've been visiting for many, many years, um, the weather is so tumultuous. It's so dynamic that every time is a little bit different. And so I, I find a little bit of solace in that. Um, also, especially with my workshops, it's it's interesting for you know looking at a location such as you know Kirchtefell or you know, Yokosarlum or Vesterhorn or any of these places that I've, I've literally visited, you know, a ridiculous number of times and to bring clients out there that have never been to Iceland and then they're seeing everything with fresh eyes and to see like, like an angle that I never saw before yeah. or see them capture something that wasn't there to me is both inspiring and also it challenges me to, to, you know, break free from, you know, the norms of, you know, uh, how I typically shoot my my habits out in the field where I tend to gravitate towards these certain things. And so to me, I think that kind of keeps propelling me forward and I get to locations and I'm like, okay, you know what, I'm going to give this another shot. Even though I have like a thousand images from, you know, this waterfall, you know, I'm, I want to try different. I want to force myself maybe with a different lens. I want to force myself to pay attention to details that I typically overlook, like whatever it is, I try to set these internal challenges because 
I think that like for me personally, um, consistency is like chloroform. It's, it's, you know, it, 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 it freaks me out a bit, to be honest. Like we're, if I'm doing the same thing over all the time, it just, it, it, it I, I feel claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like the constant change. That's why I like being an entrepreneur. Every job is different. Every try, you know, every time I travel is a little bit different. So I have to constantly challenge myself to find ways to see the world differently, to, to, to look with different perspectives. Um, I mean, one of my favorite quotes of all times is by Marcel Proust, and it's the true sense of discovery is not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. It's like that whole, whole premise that you have to change the way you look at the world and you'd be surprised at how much you typically miss. Um, and so it's a fun exercise for me out in the field in these places where I, I have too much, too many images of, of the same stuff where, you know what, maybe I need to challenge myself a little bit more to be more creative and, and come away with something um, more unique to myself. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking with uh, Colleen uh, Minnick-Sperry last week and we were talking about the the beginner's eye, like approaching every single location as if you've never been there before, which I think is kind of a fun approach, especially if you go to these places over and over and over again, because you're going you're to see stuff no. you never saw before. <laughs> For sure. No. And she's, she's awesome. As, as you know, um, I've had a handful of conversations with her on, on similar type of topics as well. And I always revert back to my son, you know, having a child is, as you know, it's, it's always interesting watching them discover yeah. things. And to me, like that is one of the most fascinating things that I, I think I've ever witnessed in, in my life where you sit there and I'm looking at my son his, his name is Jack and he gets a new thing or, or he's on a nature walk or whatever it is. And just like watching his eyes move around a scene and literally like just imagining the synapses forming in his brain and like how he's all he's taking all this in. To me, that childlike sense of discovery is something that not only all creatives, but I think all individuals, all adults should try to, you know, revitalize to try to, you know, find solace in because I, I definitely think we lose it, man. I mean, I think we take so much for granted in life. Um, it's, it's, I'm, I'm often amazed how much I learn from my seven-year-old son <laughs> in, in relation to things like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the giving lens. Um, maybe tell us a little bit what, what it is and, um, and uh, how, how it got started. Sure. So the Giving Lens is an organization that I created in 2011 that sole purpose was to try to find an infusion point between the idea of photo education and giving back to local communities. So what we do is we essentially take teams of photographers from various different skill sets, some beginners, some pros, some you know semi-pros, and we take them through these countries all around the world where we've partnered with a local NGO that is typically fighting for a specific cause. Sometimes that's clean drinking water projects, sometimes it's youth education programs, sometimes it's uh, species preservation, um, you know, women's rights. It's all across the board. And half the time, or generally photography is interwoven to everything that we do. But in general, we're working to support the cause or the needs of the organization for half our time. And then for most of our trips, the other half of the time is a little bit more photocentric. So for example, we'll go to East Africa and we'll spend time with the Maasai and we'll be talking with families with HIV and really trying to get an ingrained in-depth interpersonal look at the challenges and the realities of what it's like for these communities. And after we do that for a few days, we will go and spend a couple of days in Nagorogoro Crater and then the Serengeti. You know, we'll go to 
you know, Cambodia and work with some youth education uh, programs out there with a photography program that has been around for a long time, uh, you know, helping teach the kids new techniques and new processing skills. And then we're also going to go to Angkor Wat. So there's always kind of a, a, a little bit of everything for those trips. Um, we have an application process, so it's not just a sign up, you know, first come, first serve, like it is for my typical standard public workshops. So there's application process. We do video interviews. And for some of the trips that are a little bit more sensitive, we also require background mm-hmm. checks, um, especially ones that are heavily involved with children, um, just to obviously dot our I's and cross our T's and make sure everyone's obviously there for the right reasons. And so that's the the base of what it is. You know, we do about eight workshops, eight to 10 workshops a year in all these different cool locations. We have some alumni that have gone to the same workshop for like five years. That's cool. Just because they, f- they fell in love with the people and the kids that they were working with or the families. And they just want to maintain that those relationships. Um, and yeah, we're constantly looking and expanding into new areas and and uh, new locations. I did a, we did Uganda last year, which was the first year we did it. And it was a pure alumni trip sold out. And like, I think it was like eight hours. <laughs> um, you know, just it, It's a unique space in this, in the industry. There's a few other care, uh, um, companies or organizations that are trying to do similar things, but we have had such a head start and no one's doing it at our level um, that it's, you know, we're in a unique place to try to affect as much change as possible. And we welcome other organizations as well. We don't look at this as competition. We want the more people out there doing good work and helping communities, the better, which is kind of a good segue to talk into why I started it. So the Giving Lens, you know, it was... Essentially, when I first started traveling, as I mentioned, when I was, you know, back in 2006 and I just wanted to get back on the road and I I went to Southeast Asia for a few years, traveled around building up a portfolio. And and I quickly realized the 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 one sided street of typical tourism and, and travel photography, to be honest, where you go to these locations and you're trying to take beautiful photos. The people that you're interacting or engaging with, the cultures generally don't benefit from those experiences. Um, it's usually a one-sided piece where you as a traveler or photographer are going there to get something and then you leave and the other side of the fence just doesn't, it doesn't correlate for that positive experience a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know where your money's going. A lot of these countries have, you know, such foreign investments. So you're going to these places all over the world and you're thinking that, you know, you're supporting the local economies only where it turns out that, you know, it's a U.S. or European owned entity that owns or controls the hotel you're staying at. Um, you know, things like that always bothered me. And then at the same time, I wanted to figure out ways that were tangible opportunities to actually give back and make a difference. Um, I feel that so many photographers have similar mindsets. They want to take their art form and share it with other people. They want to take their passion for photography and help change lives, help do something, but they don't know where to start. They don't know where to begin. They don't know how to research, um, you know, quality NGOs because there's a lot of corruption in that space. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's it's a challenging situ- it's a challenging situation where I feel that a lot of people in our industry want to want to get involved, but they don't know where to begin. And so we help mitigate that. We do extensive research partnering with organizations that we vet 
that we look through financial records, that we take, you know, um, you know, word of mouth through people that we trust and our connection, there are networks all across the world. And we put together these unique experiences to help combat those things, the superficial nature of travel, the understanding of where your money's going, the actual two-way street of relationship building and connection that I think is often lost in, in the typical superficial, I have a week to spend in East Africa. And then you go there and, and you don't really know what the culture's like. You don't really know the challenges they face. We try to break those molds. We try to break those, those you know, those issues down um, into a very engaging and very personal way so that people walk away changed from those trips and those experiences and hopefully then can share that, you know, I don't want to say it in a cliche, cliche way, but that life altering experience with other people, like spreading the idea of educating the world and, and our communities back home with the power and the significance of, you know, the importance of this kind of work or of, of, just even understanding that there are people out that live outside our borders, our, our blinders, our, you know, cultural norms that um, are living with a lot of different challenges out there. And oftentimes I feel that we're, we're pretty ignorant towards um, or, or naive, maybe in, in a more positive tone towards the realities of what happens out there outside of, you know, the Western space that we typically enjoy. Yeah. What are some, um, tangible um, impacts that you've seen uh, the giving lens have? Absolutely. So I can give you a couple of different examples. So one of our first partnered organizations that we connected with is an organization in Nicaragua called Empowerment International, um, started by an amazing woman named Kathy Adams. And um, what they've done is they created a, we, we helped worked with them to create a photography program uh, that is an extracurricular program uh, tied to kids uh, retention rates within their schools. So what I mean by that is that if the kids in these barrios outside of Granada are in school every day, they're going to their extra opportunities through Empowerment International to study further, to further their education. As a reward, they could take it take advantage of a couple different extracurricular activities. One's mountain biking, which they uh, have quite successful program as well. And the other one is photography. Mm. So helping them build and solidify this program for them and supporting it each year, both financially, we donate a large portion of, of the profits from each of these trips to these organizations, the communities we go with. Um, and then of course, for programs like this, where we're actually building a foundational uh, photo education, you know, school, so mm. to speak, or an arm of their educational platform their retention rates are in the high 90s, which if anyone's in the humanitarian world understands is, is quite unheard of. And what I mean by that is that the retention rates for kids staying in school, oftentimes in these poor countries, what happens is that kids, their parents don't want them to go to school because A, they don't think there's any opportunities for them, for them outside of that, or they want them to work on their farms, right. or they want them to beg for money, or you know, you know, work on their you know, property or whatever it is. And so the kids get pulled out or they get mixed in with drugs or bad, like all sorts of, you know, negativity, you know, negative stuff out there. So having a program that has such high retention rates that is now this is the seventh year, eighth year that we've been working with Empowerment International and seeing the kids that we first started out out with helping them build that program. Some of them are now pursuing photography full time in Nicaragua. I've seen a number of them actually are now just beginning to attend college. Oh, they cool. were, you know, 10 and 11 when we first met them. And that wasn't a possibility for them seven years ago. And so just seeing that type of long term 
change is super powerful. Yeah. Um, we do. We try to do similar types of things with a lot of these organizations around the world. That's why we try each year to go back to them. Every once in a while, we'll take a year off um, and and go to a new location and then come back and revisit. But we're our idea or our 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 mantra is to to work towards empowerment. We're not here to be saviors. We're not here to solve people's problems. We're here to empower these communities to you know, create a better life for themselves. And I think that's the way that you need to approach humanitarian work in general. Too oftentimes it's a Westerner, typically white individual that is coming to these, you know, poor countries and is trying to tell them how to do things and what to, you know, what they need to do and how to solve their problems. And it very rarely works out. And, you know, then the money dries up and those people leave. And then another group comes in and promises the same thing. And it just, it's, it's not, it's not sustainable. So in my experience, the only thing that really works is empowering communities to, you know, develop their own industries to, you know, further their education, to provide opportunities for themselves, to create a better space, a better, a better life for themselves and their families. And in vast majority of our programs, we see that happening every single day, which is pretty That's awesome. That's very awesome. It's, yeah, it's something that I've been putting a lot of thought into myself lately is, um, Cause I, I heard Art Wolf talk on Nick Page's podcast and a couple other people I've talked to. It's, um, you know, having some kind of uh, larger purpose for your photography, I think, can be an incredibly important uh, endeavor for uh, landscape photographers, especially because I feel like so many people get caught up in, you know, it, it being a competition or or trying to just self promote and you know like just become more famous and more well-known. Whereas I feel like if your photography has a purpose that's greater than just yourself, I feel like it can do some amazing things. And also it forces you, I think, to think totally differently about why you're taking pictures to begin with. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know very well that, you know, there's a lot of ego in our industry and there's a lot of this competitive and negative you know, connotation towards one another. And I, I, I 100% agree. I mean, I think having a positive tone, regardless of what your, your, your driving force is, is a much better way to approach art in general, but certainly for those that are trying to do this from a business sense. Um, it's really, again, coming back to, you know, my, my word of the day, uh, sustainable. Um, it's really the only thing. I mean, if you're, if you're bitter and you're jaded, like you're going <laughs> to burn yeah. out. Like, it's just not going to happen. You, you can only last being bitter for so long. Like, I know some people out there are really trying to break world records, but in reality, like, you just can't be that negative all the time. <laughs> and so absolutely changing your purpose, changing your focus towards something that is meaningful to you, something that you're passionate about, I think is a driving force for, for that passion, for that energy, and it becomes more sustainable. And yeah, absolutely. Hopefully the idea is that you can affect some sort of change. Um, within, you know, your communities, your families, um, you know, when you travel, like whatever it is, you know, in the landscape space, obviously, you know, conservation, there's all sorts of stuff that can go out there. And I think that the key to a lot of that is um, having a realistic mindset. And what I mean by that is that I learned early on that, uh, and, and it was a, a tough lesson, uh, it was a very you know, emotional lesson, early on that I can't save everyone. I can't help everyone. Um, I'm not going to be able to affect change on, you know, through initiatives like the Giving Lens and, you know, feed everyone that needs needs food or provide milk for all the families that need it or whatever it is. But I can start realistically and small with 
a family. And then once I figured out how to do that, then I built it up into a community. And then from there, it might have been a city. And then from there, we're talking about raising money or affecting change on more so of a, of a country right. level. And like those things are much more achievable. And that same thing permeates or correlates over into the landscape conservation, wildlife preservation world as well. Like you got to start realistic because if you have two lofty goals right off the bat, like that's also how you burn <laughs> out is because you just get disappointed. Like you just... You know, start start small and realistic, but absolutely, I 100% support that idea, that notion that you need to follow, you know, you, you need to make sure that your passion is is, is headed in the right direction. And uh, yeah, don't get sucked up into the, the game of, of, you know, notoriety and popularity, like all that stuff is such you know, crap, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you've talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know, the reality that we are in this industry, in photography right now, there will never be another Ansel Adams. There's never going to be another Anna, Annie Leibovitz. Um, you know, the, the, we've passed that stage where anyone's really going to be known past their time, regardless of what they may think. And so for me, that's a freeing exercise where it's not, not only was it never in my, my purview to begin with, I don't care to be the best photographer in the world. I do this because I love it. Um, but just that notion of, of chasing, you know, false idols, chasing false fame, like it, it, it doesn't matter. Like 10 years from now, like who's going to remember most of us anyway. <laughs> so we might as well like enjoy what we're doing and have a much more positive and powerful driving force than trying to sit there and, you know, figure that we're going to break some sort of cultural norm and and become the next Ansel Adams and people are going to talk about you down the line. Like it's not going to happen. Like we, we've, 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 we've peaked saturation point within. Oh, this for space. sure. For sure. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's shift gears and talk about social media because um, I think that's one of the things that, uh, that, that I've always, um, I guess, noticed about you is that uh, you're definitely a power user of social media. So I wanted to, approach that from a couple of different angles um with you the first one is kind of tertiary to photography but uh it's it's more about uh political views so um you know i I don't think it's a secret that that you're very open about your political views on social media i'm the same way and and, of course uh uh, a lot. I think a lot of photographers uh, tend to use their social media to express their political views, which may or may not resonate with their followers or fans. Um, do you feel it's necessary to do so? And if so, what are you trying to achieve other than vent or just express your personal opinions? Well, I think, well, a couple different things I, I, I think are the, the core backing why uh, I am the way that I am <laughs> on, on social platforms. I think first and foremost is that I've never been a good individual about holding my tongue. And that's both from just a, in a, a, a goal or a, um, a purpose of, of, you know, constantly wanting to share my thoughts and opinions. Um, I, I think is kind of a core piece of that where I just, I, I do want to talk about things that I'm passionate about something, you know, things that are important to me. And I think that all too often in a, space like photography people are they they kind of have the ostrich mentality where it's just like all this crazy stuff is happening around the world or whether it's you know politically or you know conservation wise or environmental and they just don't want to piss anyone off so they just don't say anything and i don't think that help that that helps anyone i don't think that 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 pushes the conversation forward 
Um, as you, you know, are well aware of on my personal pages, more specifically than necessarily my business pages, I am happy to, uh, I like to call it poke the bear, um, <laughs> to, to bring up contentious points that I am passionate about that I think spur conversation that get people engaged. Um, on my own spaces, I very rarely will block anyone. Like I, I, I like the back and forth. I like the conversations that come out of it. I don't expect to change anyone's mind and I don't think anyone necessarily should go into it with that mentality, but I do like to have more open dialogue and specifically here in the United States, although it's certainly not endemic to our country, I feel that so often we are not even having conversations anymore. Mm -hmm. We are just, you know, yelling at each other and then calling each other names and no one's listening and having a conversation. And I really like the fact that I have a lot of followers that don't agree with me from a, you know, civil standpoint or from, you know, a social economic standpoint or, or whatever it is. Um, and that they feel free enough to be able to interject and have those open conversations, you know, even if they're calling me crazy or stupid or, you know what I mean? Like, like at least we're having a conversation. And so I think that that's a really important part of it from a cultural standpoint. Now, at the same time, I certainly don't want to be disingenuous and say that engagement is key across all social media in terms of how algorithms work and all sorts of stuff. So the more conversations that I have to not only understand my followers, which gives me a whole different bag of statistical information that I can then pull from at a later point in time when it's needed from, you know, maybe more of a, a business or a social media standpoint, but also from the algorithms, algorithms themselves. So every, every time I get a comment, or, you know, a like or people are, you know, saving, you know, screenshots or saving images on Instagram, that's telling those algorithms something. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens on Facebook as well. I get comments and tons of th these threads that become, you know, two, 300, 500 comments long, like those things all help me. It's not necessarily the driving force of why I do it, but it certainly is a beneficial aspect of it. And so the fact that I love the conversations, I enjoy the topics that I'm choosing to bring up with, whether it's technology and, and you know, talking about you know, some, you know, maybe more mundane things like, you know, Apple versus Android or, <laughs> or, you know, Sony versus Nikon or any of those things, which I think are certainly more superficial, but are also fun conversations because I'm a tech geek to the more, you know, politically driven, um, you know, talking about politics or religions or guns or things like that, I think, like I said, are, are interesting. I want to break, ultimately what I want to do is I want to break the algorithms. I want to break the algorithms for the platforms and certainly for my own profiles. And if you think about it, all the different social media platforms, the algorithms, all are essentially built to create echo chambers. Mm -hmm. If you engage with my photos that I'm sharing about Iceland, it's going to show Facebook is going to show you more stuff from Iceland because it's that's what it thinks that you want. And that's what it thinks you want from me. And so the more that we are too consistent on social media in terms of what we talk about or don't talk about, the more that it's just creating this false narrative of, of the, this, this, this false algorithm of what it thinks that we want just because we're too scared to kind of break free from that or to piss people off or whatnot. So when I bring up these points of condition of, of contention, it breaks that. It, it, you know, I see lots of stuff in my feed. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone that follows me understands that I'm, a you know 
pre, you know, pretty progressive individual, although I'm a little bit more fiscally conservative in terms of a political stance, that um, you know, I, I see in my feeds all the time stuff from you know Fox News and Breitbart and all this other stuff because I like to engage in those types of conversations and topics because I don't want to see just things that reaffirm my own beliefs because I think that's one of the biggest downfalls of something like social media that I love and that has been very beneficial to me from a business standpoint where I think it's also creating cultural problems because of this mindset that um, these algorithms are deciding what we need to see. And the more that we engage in it in a certain way, the more it shows of us that way. And all of a sudden that defines, you know, we, we think that we create these little echo chambers that we think, you know, everyone agrees with us when in reality, it's your small sliver of the digital world um, that is is part of that, that mentality. Yeah, I've noticed that too, that um, uh, I get shown the same stuff over and over and over again. So I think that's, that's an interesting way to keep your 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 social engagement a little bit different in terms of, you know, being a little bit more stimulating and actually having uh, more. I, I like what you said about having more meaningful conversations with people. You're not trying to convince people to change their minds. You're just, I guess my question, follow-up question, um, and I think you sort of answered it already, but I just want to kind of <laughs> ask more directly is um, sure. I, I've noticed that, you are successful at using social media um, by creating kind of controversial topics, like whether that be um, like I've noticed. I don't have a specific example at hand, but like you'll 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 kind of bring up a topic that's related to photography, but you'll kind of pose it in a way that kind of gets people riled up a little bit, you know. And wow. I think yeah. I guess my question: Do you do that on purpose? And if so, uh, what is the why? Why do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, again, a couple cu couple reasons for doing that. I guess first and foremost, it's that we live in a digital space where people are inundated with so much content that getting someone's attention is getting harder and harder. So we, we see this in photography as an artistic medium itself. You know, you post what you think is a great photo in a certain space and you're competing with a lot of other stuff out there for people's attention and people's attention span because of the digital world we live in is like nanoseconds. And so oftentimes I find that just like when one creates a YouTube video and has to think of a interesting subject line or starting point for that conversation, a lot of thought should go into it. Now, I don't want to put myself in the same space where I'm creating false headlines or <laughs> right. I'm, you know, intentionally trying to necessarily piss people off, but I want to bring up topics that are, that, that are engaging, that are spiking conversations, uh -huh. including obviously people that disagree with me because that's going to snowball the conversation and all social media works in, in a, a, a split analogy. And what I mean by that is there's two different pieces to, to how social media works in general. You have the em empty restaurant syndrome and then you have the snowball effect. So the empty restaurant syndrome is essentially the idea that you're walking around your downtown and you walk down a street and on the left side of the street, you have a restaurant that's completely empty. And on the right hand, hand side of the street, you have it's, it's packed full and maybe there's even a small wait list. Sub, uh, psychologically, most human beings think there's something wrong with what's happening on the left you know, the, the restaurant on the left, and they want to go wait in the other line because maybe they think the food's better. 
or it's going to be, you know, better drink specials or whatever it is. And that same mentality happens with social media so that the more interactions that you get on a typical post, the more interactions that it's going to uh, bring in because of how the algorithms work, which leads me to the snowball effect where that's kind of how things happen. You start a snowball at the top of the mountain, you get a couple more comments, a couple more likes, even if it's anger or whatever it is in terms of, you know, the Facebook little emojis. And then that snowballs and then there's going to be more and more. And you can typically see the viral nature of any sort any sort of topic, usually within the first about 14 to 24 minutes of how the algorithms are going to push that to other people. So what happens is when you push something out on social media, Facebook or Instagram is, is showing it to a selective number of your audience. You know, we all understand the mm -hmm. algorithms are limiting that number is. And then how people interact with that determines how, how many more people it's going to show up in their mm -hmm. feed. So you have that first initial window to make your biggest impact. And after that time span, whatever, you know, it may vary by person or by network, then you have much less chance of that content being seen by more of your followers. And so starting off conversations that do have a pointed opinion, which again, I'm enjoy sharing my <laughs> thoughts and that spur a topic in a certain direction, or at least leave it open-ended for people not only to agree, but also to, you know, disagree sometimes vehemently, um, allow for that, that conversation to happen back and forth. And I got, like I said, I got a couple of trolls that follow me that like to like <laughs> completely just, you know, back, you know, the, to, to say the opposite of whatever that I'm pushing out there. And like I said, I, I'm not blocking them because I like those conversations. I like the engagement and, and, you know, some of these people have gotten to know digitally over the years. And, and like I said, it's, it's, it's part of the fun. Um, but I think the important part coming back to all of this is simply just the conversations mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you know, Capturing people's attention with some of those headlines or the way that I'm posing a subject, I think, is um, helps spur that. And again, that's my end goal. You know, conversations, meaningful interactions, uh, especially with people that don't see eye to eye yeah, with me. No, that, that that's that's kind of a, one of the reasons I wanted to create the podcast too. Is I just wanted to have more in depth conversations with people that wasn't just about like what's your favorite lens and like uh, do you like to use this kind of uh, post-processing technique. I think there's so many topics that touch photography that I think um, don't get really discussed at a kind of more in-depth level. So I can totally appreciate that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, like, you know, again, the, the, the nature of the digital space we live in is, is quite superficial. And so we have to work harder to kind of work around that. You have, you know, this incredible podcast, um, you know, there, there's a lot of different opportunities for people to actually, you know, have these meaningful conversations, but they have to break free from this mentality that they are too scared to piss people right. off. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like, you know, what, what's the age old sailing? Like if you're not pissing people off, you're not doing something right. <laughs> I, I think there's some truth to that. I don't want to, I don't want to ruin people's day by any means. But, you know, there are a number of people probably in this industry that aren't huge fans of mine. And I take solace in that. I think that's actually a good thing. Yeah, no, I've got, there's a, I've gotten some negative comments about the podcast in the past about, you know, certain opinions that I hold that I talk about. So I think yeah. that's a good thing. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that you feel confident to share those. Again, I, I think that's a big thing. Like, like. You know, we shouldn't let our followers or our fear of those that follow us on social media um, dictate how we use a digital space uh, like a podcast or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. We, you know, these are our platforms. We should decide how those conversations should yeah. go. So 
more power yeah. to you, man. All right. Well, so uh, just a couple more questions for you. Um, so sure. based on the name of the podcast, uh, F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen, what advice would you have for other photographers? I would have, let's see, let's go with two different things. I'll give you a two for here. So the first thing that I would say is we need to get rid of this notion, which again, I think is more so around the Western world, that failure is, a, is something to fear. It's a negative thing. I, I, I feel that a lot of, you know, public education, all sorts of stuff is, you know, our, our society in general looks at failure as this, this, um, this negative experience. And if you actually look at any of the most successful people in any industry, their success is defined by a string of failures. And those failures are things that they learned from and they ultimately were able to expand upon or change directions and they ultimately found success. So failure is a key part of finding success. Now, I don't mean this necessarily purely in a business sense, uh, although certainly that's my space, but I feel that in photography, in terms of that pursuit, like don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to suck at something. Don't be afraid to try something to push yourself, you know, push yourself to get outside your comfort zone because that's how you learn. That's how you, you know, challenge yourself. That's where you see where your limits are. And, you know, as we were just talking about with social media, like you, you, you don't want to try to placate everyone because then you're never going to be able to fulfill your own vision. Um, assuming you even know what that is at this stage. So, you know, number one, don't be afraid to failure. Don't, don't be afraid to put yourself out there. I think the second thing that I would say, uh, again, correlating just more so to the digital space is stop looking at everyone like competition. I can tell you right now firsthand, uh, because I've been so fortunate to be as, as successful as I am um, in terms of my businesses and the revenue that I generate, that right now um, there is more money to be made in the photography space than ever mm -hmm. before in all different fields. Um, there, are, there are different revenue streams than they than they were before, but there is a lot more of it. A lot of companies, a lot of entities, a lot of organizations, both from you know conservation to you know uh, more capitalistic, are all merging their social media platforms or social media departments within marketing and PR, which is opening up so many more doors than there were before. So don't get caught up with this idea that someone else's success is your failure or, or something that you're necessarily like, like it's a negative thing. I think that you should take the idea or this, this mantra that, you know, there's all this, there's more photographers out there. So there's more competition is, uh, is not accurate. It's not realistic. You have to look and realize that you need to create your own niche. You need to find your own pathway. You need to find a way to separate yourself kind of from what else is happening out there. And my best moments in this industry are when I put my blinders on and I don't pay attention to what any other photographers at my level are doing. And I'm just concentrating on building my own brand and doing my own thing. And that's when I get the most focus. That's when I get the most reward. You know, don't don't fret about what everyone else is doing. Just enjoy your own creative pathway and, and know that, um, you know, you have you you can create that yourself. You don't have to tie it to anyone else and what they're doing. So two long-winded answers, but hopefully that helps. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, that's some, definitely some great advice uh, that I probably could have used a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> me, me too, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, seriously, it's so funny how much time I've wasted over the years, like caring about stuff that doesn't matter. It's, it's ridiculous. It's true, man. I mean, and, and even coming back and harking back to like, you know, people that we don't get along with, like, again, we're not, you know, we're, we're not meant to, to connect and enjoy everyone. Like, 
I found myself in the photo industry over the years that I've been doing this, which again now is 12 years, to simply be removing those people from my space, the people that are negative, the people that are you know constantly hounding you, the the the, the people that that aren't adding positive you know uh, effects to what you're doing. I think is is a good thing. And those are the people that I choose not to work with anymore because they were more of a, a drag on things. So, you know, focus on the positive side of things. And um, yeah, it, these are all hard lessons that we all had to learn at some point. So, you know, ho- hopefully it helps other listeners out there. Absolutely. All right, last question is, um, who do you think would be cool to have on the podcast? That's a good question. There's a lot of amazing people out there. Um, you know what? Uh, can I give you two? Or you can, is it yeah. only allowed one? Okay, so let's do two. So uh, the number one person that I'd love to hear more of, and maybe it's more of a selfish reason, although he is a phenomenal photographer, just because I haven't actually talked to him in a while, is Patrick DeFruccia. Okay. I don't know if uh, if he, I don't think he's been on before. Last I checked the, the list, uh, Canadian photographer from Montreal. He is amazing. Heart's in the right place. He is a character. He's actually, he was on, he was with me on my first trip ever to Iceland. Um, uh, and I love that guy. And, and I think, I think your followers would really get a kick out of him. Cool. And the other person I would say is actually an Australian photographer. So maybe correlating time might be a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, he actually lives in New Zealand now, but I'd say, uh, William Patino. Um, he is a, a great photographer, uh, really phenomenal, both on social media in terms of his artistic, um, vision and how he does stuff. Great in photo education. Um, but I think he would also be a great fit for, for the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Those, um, I've heard of both of them before and, uh, um, but you're right. Neither of them have been in the podcast. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Um, so what do you have coming up that, uh, that you want to talk about, uh, on the podcast, like, uh, workshops or anything else that you want to promote? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I got a, a lot of trips coming up for different pieces and, and, and both marketing campaigns and workshops. Most of those are sold out. Um, I got stuff happening in Iceland, like I said, in Australia, just the next few weeks, British Virgin Islands. Uh, but in terms of stuff that's actually available for other, other people to do, um, I do have a Myanmar workshop. Obviously, this is a landscape podcast. So we do some landscape, but it's a little bit more cultural infusion uh-huh. that's happening in November. Um, and then uh, I may have a spot or two open on my Iceland winter stuff next year. Uh, but outside of that stuff, which is going to sell out probably pretty soon anyway, I highly recommend everyone listening to please go check out The Giving Lens uh, and what we do out there. Um, if you like what we're doing, and even if you can't join us on one of our adventures, we'd love for you to share it with other people out in the industry. You know, getting more people to know about what we're doing allows us to help raise more and more money. You know, my goal for um, 20, probably by 2021 is to raise 500000 or yeah, $500,000 for these organizations um and the more that people know about what we're doing the more opportunities we have to affect more change um and and help fight for these causes so i really appreciate anyone that is willing to even if it's just taking the time to check out thegivinglens.com and what we do and of course if you share it that is icing on the cake so thank you for that well thanks colby i appreciate you coming on the podcast it's been uh, a lot of fun i think uh maybe for the 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 Patreon version of the podcast, maybe we'll go talk a little bit more about social media since that's something that you're super into and have a quick follow-up about that. But uh, thanks so much, man. Absolutely. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks again. Cool. Thanks to Colby for taking the time to visit with, with us today. To find out more about Colby and see more of his work, visit colbybrownphotography.com. 
You'll find links to topics we discussed and more in the show notes on my blog at www.mattpainphotography.com. You can support us by writing a review about the podcast in the iTunes store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, it helps others discover the podcast. Thanks to Silicon, Silicon Valley John, Husker Shoe, and Diego McCartney for their five-star reviews. You guys are awesome. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. For as little as $1, you help pay for the production costs of the podcast and it help us improve the podcast. And for $5 a month and higher, gain access to bonus episodes. This week on Patreon, Colby and I discuss the past, present, and future of social media. Thanks to our newest patrons, Adam Shalau, Colleen Minix-Berry, and Mike Berenson. You guys are helping keep the podcast alive and are amazing. If you want to drop me a line about the podcast, either suggestions or ideas, please reach out to me via my website at www.mattpainphotography.com or uh, reach out to me on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at mattpainphoto, and on Facebook, I'm at mattpainphotography. Thanks for listening.